Great. Thank you. Joe, apologies again to the musicians who are going to get my best profile this morning. Um, but welcome again, and what a privilege to sing in that praise this morning and to pick up that theme of hope, actually, that was in that last song we sang and it's in that reading. So do keep that open. We're going to look at that together and just really look at those words which Matthew was quoting there uh, and that theme of hope. I was at a meeting with other church leaders recently, and we are talking about the part of children in our church life, and one I was speaking to said, well, we have no children in our church at all, no under-16s at all. In fact, pretty much no under 50s. And what a sad, what a tragic situation that is for a church to be in. How discouraging. Uh, Where's your hope come from when you feel like that? Uh, But actually, many of us would say that the question of hope and discouragement is a much more personal thing than that, isn't it? You know, I think of someone, uh, Mary, recently, whose faith has been badly dented by things that happen in her life. I think of um, a gentleman who has struggled to believe that he really is a Christian for a long time. Many of us have those personal, spiritual discouragements troubling us, and we wonder, where where does hope come from? How do I feel stronger than this? And today's passage, I believe, is going to help us enormously with that question of hope and courage. We're in Matthew 12 here, part of our series on Sunday mornings, and we find Jesus continuing to preach to proclaim the good news and as he does so he is seeing lives changing and he said at the end of the last chapter that he's come he promised to bring a yoke Um, he means his his way his teaching that is easy to carry against the burdens of the religious leaders around him he's come to bring a gentle form of leadership over our lives He continues to heal sick people, battered and bruised by life as he goes along. But we saw uh, that not everyone welcomed him. If you just look at verse 14, just before our reading, and then verse 15, there's quite a contrast here. Jesus, in verse 14, is rejected. The Pharisees, they were the the sort of priests, the clergy of their day, the Bible lovers. They actually hated him. They went out of their way, in fact, to kill him despite all the good things he's doing and so verse 15 he withdraws and goes to another place and continues the work he was doing he's not withdrawing because he's afraid of them we know later in Matthew's story that Jesus will face betrayal trial crucifixion with extraordinary superhuman courage but he withdraws from discretion Uh, He can't do what he wants to do in this place, so he moves on to do what he wants to do in the next place instead. And Matthew wants us to believe, as he reads to us these words from Isaiah in the verses that follow, that Jesus is far from being the godless troublemaker that the Pharisees think he is. He's actually bringing the very goodness, the very love, the very rule. It's called God's kingdom in the gospel writings. The very just rule of God on earth, his justice on earth. He's putting wrongs right. He's not doing wrong himself. Matthew quotes from this section of the prophet Isaiah. Um, So again, you can see the footnote there where it comes from, Isaiah 42. And that'll be a wonderful thing to go home and read later. It's actually one of, of, of three similar, they're called songs, prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, which point to someone who's called God's servant. 
the servant songs. This is the first one Isaiah has in his book. And Matthew quotes these words almost to say, look, here's Jesus' resume, his CV. This is how he's qualified perfectly to do the work of God for the people of God, to bring the rule, the just rule of God on earth. He's that servant. And what we're going to see this morning, that Jesus comes as God's servant to bring the hope of wrongs righted and of people put right with God. That's what really the Bible means by justice. God putting things right and us right. And when you look at the, the song, it, if you look at it in the English version, it's the same in the original, there are three sentences. We'll just look at those three sentences and spend more time on the first two, just briefly the third. Here's the first one. The first thing that Jesus is as God's servant, he's God's obedient servant. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, says Matthew, says Isaiah, quoted by Matthew in verse 18. Now, a servant is someone, isn't, isn't they? They're someone who, in if you Downton Abbey language, they're downstairs, aren't they? Upstairs, downstairs. They're the downstairs lot. They're the, the people that do all the hard work behind the scenes and don't get any of the glory, uh, don't get to sample the feast at the end of the day when it's all been cooked in the kitchen. They're the hard workers. They're humble. They do the work, not expecting to get the glory for it. And that's what Jesus is like, says Matthew. But of course, to be a servant, to be servant-hearted, doesn't mean your work is not hugely important or responsible. I think of even like a, like a ball boy at Wimbledon, um, who will be rubbing shoulders with and, and serving some very big names from the tennis world. So it can be hugely responsible, even if it's very humble. Uh, we've got Michael here this morning, dear friend of ours, and um, Michael and Dad, Welsh. So, got to get some Wales in here this morning. The Prince of Wales has a, a heraldic badge with a motto on it, which is actually in German. Uh, don't ask me why the Prince of Wales' badge is in German, but that's Wales for you, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a, a picture, it's three white ostrich feathers emerging from a crown. And apparently it's first used this emblem by Arthur, who was the oldest son of King Henry VII, early in the 16th century. And the motto is Ichdin, which people tell me means, I serve. Is that fascinating? The Prince of Wales's motto is I serve. There you've got, haven't you? You've got the authority and the responsibility, but it's being used for, for serving others. Power for good. Jesus is that servant. That's the first thing. He's second, you see there's six there, aren't there, on the screen? He's chosen. This is my servant whom I've chosen. God has hand-picked Jesus to bring his just rule to earth, to put things right. He's not ordinary. He's not any other human being. He's unique. Chosen by God. Only he is chosen because only he is perfect, is without sin. Only he always does right and never wrong. Only he is obedient as a servant. The next two words uh, reveal the depth, of the closeness of the relationship between Jesus and God or between father and son. The one whom I love, the beloved servant. And he's loved, he's delightful, the one in whom I, I am delighted, the one that pleases me, we might say. 
because he's the obedient one. We've all messed up, if we're honest. We've all, I've walked away from God in so many ways. I've done so much wrong. I've thought so much wrong. I've failed to do so much right. But only Jesus has perfectly always done what's right, always thought a right thought. Isn't that extraordinary? Always spoken the right word for that moment, always done exactly the right thing, only he. That's why he delights the Father. That's why he's pleasing to him. That's why he's beloved of God. Jesus is everything a son should be to a father. He's everything that a servant should be to a master. Only he. I became a Christian uh, actually here at this church uh, some 35 years ago from a place of wanting to find God and then as I searched finding that God was there, wanting to to find my way to God, a little like Michael was describing earlier, thinking that it was all about how I lived. If I could be good enough, God would love me. Then I could do enough right things or think enough right thoughts, I'd, I'd be okay then. And I discovered as I looked very slowly, I worked this out, it, it, isn't, it really wasn't about me being right enough for God. It's about Jesus being perfectly right. Perfectly righteous, we'd say absolutely obedient and my hope rests in his obedience in his rightness in place of my wrongness where through my sinfulness I could never delight the father Jesus delights him perfectly he's anointed the fifth of the sixth God's servant will be anointed it says there I will place my spirit on him second half of this sentence I will place my spirit. That word spirit, the placing of the spirit, it's the word anointing in the Old Testament. It's the word from which we get the word Messiah, the anointed one. The one that God's placed his spirit on. And God is saying here through Isaiah, through Matthew, Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. The one I'll place my spirit on. I will equip him to do my work on us. I will equip him to heal the sick even to raise the dead, to proclaim the good news, to bring people back to me, to put things right. He was given his spirit at his conception, we're told in the Christmas stories, in the womb of Mary. He was empowered with that spirit at his baptism. This is my son whom I love, says the father, as Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. And now we're discovering he's equipped by that spirit for all of his ministry. He's anointed. Lastly, he is proclaiming justice or rightness. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Justice. God is going to one day put everything wrong right. God is going to one day put every person that comes to him, as we've just sung, receiving right with himself. Not by who I am, what I've done, but by his love and mercy in Christ. He proclaims that good news. Wrongs righted, sins forgiven, hope for eternity for all who turn to him. His obedience, Jesus' obedience, we're seeing, it more than outweighs all my sin. His obedience more than outweighs all I've ever done wrong. And the lovely thing is that as I come to him, as I trust in him, he begins by his spirit in my heart to turn me towards his ways, to make me want to do right things and think right thoughts. 
His justice will begin to be seen in action in my own heart because of his life in me. And the little surprise, we'll come back to this actually at the end, but little surprise there. I will proclaim justice to the nations. We think, don't we, of the Old Testament as a, a Hebrew book for Hebrew people, but actually right there in Isaiah, there's that message that God's mercy and justice is for everyone who'll receive it, for the nations. The gospel which has a direct power to reach into our hearts and transform us Isaiah was saying, and it's come true in Jesus, that gospel is for everyone. Not just for the in crowd. And we'll come back to that as I say. So what must I do? Well, if he is God's obedient servant, the first thing is, if God the Father has chosen Jesus, who am I not to choose him myself? What a fool I'd be if God's chosen this one to say, oh no, no, not for me. I prefer uh, my career my relationships, my selfishness. I don't want to choose him. If his obedience to God's way has brought me the opportunity to be right with God and to begin to have my heart put right for eternity, why would I not delight in Jesus in the way that the Father does? Wouldn't today be a great day for someone here to choose him? If the Father delights in Jesus then that means for all of us here. Your best hope, as I found when I was just 18 years old, your best hope and mine is to put my trust in him. Not to try to make the Father delight in me because I'm good enough, but to trust in Jesus in whom the Father delights in all of us who trust in him. We're fully accepted in Christ, not by anything we do, as we saw with the ladder earlier, but by what Christ does for us. He brings people, men and women and God, together by what he's done. So rely on his obedience, not yours. And last thought on this one is, trust in his loving, just rule in your life. Ask him to help you to come under that gentle yoke of his. To let him mould your heart to walk his way. Trust in his spirit as he speaks his truth, his gospel, his justice into your heart. Pray that it will change you from the inside to live his way. The obedient servant. Here's the second, the, the second big thing about Jesus as a servant this morning. He's also God's gentle servant. He will not quarrel, says verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the street. The Gospels make a lot of Jesus' quietness. Often it's almost a secrecy. And that's probably because he wants people to discover him, to put their trust in him in person, not second-hand by reputation. That's faith. But Matthew actually has a different spin on that here. He quotes Isaiah's prophecy for a different reason. He's less interested here in Jesus' secrecy or silence as what's called a messianic secret. It's actually about his messianic credentials here. It's back to his CV. Why is Jesus' being quiet a sign that he's actually God's chosen one? Well, Isaiah helps us because Isaiah promised, promised that. He said, 
a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's, he's not going to quarrel with his enemies. We've seen that already. He withdraws from them rather than quarrel. But also, he's going to be gentle with his own people. A bruised reed that will not be broken. It's a picture of... You know, I don't know if you've ever seen any gardeners where, but those little kind of sticks they have on gardeners' world that they used to prop plants up that are a bit frail. Tiny little twigs almost. Jesus will not see us, if, I, if I'm a young believer, as a little twig that he just, oh, come on, you're, you're so pathetic, and just snap us. He'll tenderly bind us up and strengthen us instead. He'll build us up. He won't break us. The smoldering candle uh, that he won't snuff out. Again, that's the weak Christian. That's you and me when we struggle with our doubts, when we think, I, I, I'm not even sure I believe, I'm not sure if I'm good enough. He doesn't snuff us out because there's not a lot of spark there. He gently fans us into flame. You see, a brutal Messiah would snap the broken reed and say, you're useless to me. A gentle servant gently cares for us, builds us up, fans us into flame. I remember a man called Matt who was a member of our, our Discover group that we were uh, offering to people in our last church a few years ago. And he felt that he could never be good enough for God, that he struggled with mental health issues and self-esteem um, and so on. And I remember just feeling some, some seasons of his life that he just really couldn't look God in the face, couldn't even look us in the face as Christians. Um, but with with reminding him and him being shown the love of Christ, the gentleness of the Saviour to him, um, he gradually became steadier and stronger. When I was 18, as I say, I was exploring faith and coming to Christ, and as a very young Christian, um, I could so easily have snapped and fallen away, but he gently nurtured me. And it was he that carried me in those early months and seasons of beginning to follow him. A gentle, gentle servant. The Jewish people of Jesus' day, on the whole, expected not a gentle servant. They expected a military genius to come and sort out the enemy and put them on the throne. To bring God's physical kingdom on earth in force and power. But Jesus, we're seeing, will bring God's rule, but he'll do it gently and humbly and quietly. God's gentle servant. Not bruising others, but bruised for our sins. Not quenching the flame, but unquenchable himself and dying and then rising in defeat of death, in victory. As Jesus begins to work that work, that gentle work in our hearts, he will begin by his spirit to turn weak hearts into strong ones, to turn doubts into faith, to turn unbelief into grateful obedience. There was a great preacher early in the 17th century called Richard Sibbs who did a very famous sermon on these verses and one of the phrases he has there is this he speaks here of Christ his spirit will convince me of his righteousness to cover my sin that's his forgiveness and of his government that's the idea of his gentle rule over our hearts his government to rule my heart that's Jesus' gentle work in us Gently showing us of the way back through his righteousness. 
and gently beginning through his spirit to mold our hearts in his ways. So wrongs will be righted, sin redeemed, hearts changed, the preaching of the gospel in the world, and the work of the spirit in our hearts will prevail. He will bring justice to, see the end of that verse 20, victory. Grace will gain the upper hand in the world, in my heart, and in eternity, in glory. So again, for us this morning, wherever we are this morning, in our attitude to God, our relationship with God, we're learning, aren't we? Don't let weakness discourage you. If there's the smallest sign of grace in your heart... The smallest spark of faith, Christ will nurture and protect and fan that into flame. Don't accept the voice that says, oh, you know, you're not good enough to be a Christian. You're faking this. Where there's smoke, there really is spiritual fire. The presence of some faith in you or me, however small it feels, is what matters, not the quantity. He loves to nurture bruised reeds, to fan smoking candles. He brings faith to the doubting, peace to the self-condemning, and to the anxious. Now we're heading, secondly, towards an election, aren't we, in a few weeks' time? And as we pray for our government, for those that will govern us in future, what a reminder this morning that the government that really matters is the government of Christ in our hearts. His just rule that will bring victory for God's perfect ways. The best way, isn't it, to to a good society is good hearts. And the only way to good hearts is the spirit of Christ among us and in us. I'm praying uh, for our nation at the moment. I'm praying about other things for a God-honoring, Christ-centered revival of faith in our country. Because the government of Christ will lead to a government of goodness and righteousness in our nation. And for you and me personally, isn't the challenge this morning to allow Christ, in his gentleness as our saviour and servant, to be the one that rules and guides and leads our lives? To stop trying to do it my way, stop trying to say, I I know better, I'll prioritise the things I think are important for me, and to allow him, by his spirit, to teach me what's really important, what's right and what's wrong. It's very dangerous to rely on myself to to do it my way, even to rely on myself to be good enough, rather than placing my whole self in his hands and saying, work your justice in my life. Teach me what's right. Teach me to be grateful for putting me right with you. We've seen, haven't we, the obedient servant and the gentle servant. Just more briefly as we finish The third of these sentences, Matthew, through the words of Isaiah, shows us Jesus is also God's saving servant. He really is our saviour. In his name, says verse 21, quoting Isaiah, in his name the nations will put their hope. Now to put your hope in the name of someone is to say you trust their character. If you put your hope in the name of the surgeon... As you go under the knife, you're saying, I trust this person to do their job reliably, 
in fact, perfectly. Isaiah's promising that this servant of God that God will send one day will be the kind of person that you can put your trust in, that you can bank your life literally on. He will bring hope. He will be a solid person, a solid name to pin your hopes on. He'll be hope for guilt to be removed perfectly, righteousness to come to me through him. He'll be hope for God's laws, God's good and just laws, to begin to be followed. He'll be hope for even sickness not to defeat me, for death one day to be finished with. And the name on which Matthew says we should pin that hope is Jesus. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And of course, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 1, the Christmas story, Matthew told us what Jesus' name means. I don't know if you remember that story, where Joseph is told that Mary will bear a child and he's to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Saviour. The saving servant. Put your hope in him. Now, the original Hebrew Bible here in Isaiah chapter 42 actually has two slightly different versions, and I've put them on the screen there. One says, in his name, the islands will put their hope. It's a perfectly valid version of the original. The other one says, in his name, the nations. Intrigue is, you see this just occasionally with the Hebrew Bible, slightly different versions with slightly different um, meanings to them. Did you notice which one Matthew chooses to quote? In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is a very big thing for Matthew. He wants us to really get this, that Jesus is the saving servant, but not only for the Jewish people, not only for the religious, not only for those that are close to God already, or not only those that know the Bible already, but for the nations, for everyone, for all for young and old, for near and far, for religious, yes, but also for those who've never darkened the door of a church. The nations will put their hope in his name. He's obedient, he's gentle, and he is saving for all. So if that's you this morning, I'll just encourage you, as we reflect on these challenges this morning, to Look to Jesus. Make him your hope. Make his name the name that you pin everything on. Don't make it your career. Don't make it your achievements. Don't even make it the close people to you. Because we, all of these things, will one day let us down. But Jesus' name is absolutely trustworthy. Put your hope in him. Maybe we need a challenge this morning to make that a personal trust. Again, I think of people who, who would say, yeah, I believe in God and I've, I kind of go to church, I'm not as good as I could be and so on. But it's not actually the name of Jesus that I'm trusting in. If that's you this morning, make him your personal hope. Say, Jesus, you love me, you saved me, you came to put me right, thank you, I trust you. I think for us as a church, perhaps, and for many of us, the challenge here is that he is the name for the nations, for all. He's not just for people like me. He's not just for those that are members of this church, for those that already know this stuff. He's the hope for everyone. Whatever generation, whatever culture, whatever language, young or old, men and women, boys and girls, he is the hope for all. 
And we cannot keep this hope, can we, to ourselves. He has gone from eternity into time, from heaven to earth, to the cross for us, to make his name public, that we can pin our hope on him. We cannot keep him to ourselves. And someone came today as I finish. You've come despairing of hope. You've come thinking, I I don't know where I turn. I don't think anyone can help me. I don't even think God can help me. Well, if that's you this morning, hear what Matthew tells us. Hear what Jesus proclaims. He is your hope. You can put your trust in him. If you hear that call today, uh, at the end of the service, turn to the person next to you and say, how do I hold on to, how do I find Jesus? I want to put my hope in him. Do it today. In him, promises God through Matthew, the nations will put their hope. In him, says Matthew, the heart of every lost, desperate person will find hope. In him, there's a hope that every believer, every church, is privileged and is called to make public, to share, to offer to every lost, broken person we meet. He is the hope of the nations. Let's pray. Words of a song are a prayer addressed to Jesus. Gentle saviour, gracious friend, strong deliverer, beginning and end. All within me calls out in praise your majesty. I can but bow, I lay my all before you now in royal robes that I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty, gentle, obedient saviour. Amen.